1: Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast brought to you by Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Liverpool Echo and Newcastle Journal and Chronicle. It's a different episode of the podcast this week. We are coming to you from the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal's headquarters in Newcastle City Centre where we have just concluded Northern Agenda Live, our first conference held in person here and streamed online It's been a great event i have to say we've had keynote speeches from lisa nandy the shadow leveling up secretary and neil o'brien the leveling up minister as well as a host of interesting panel debates on health education skills and jobs Uh, i'm here with dan o'donoghue dan what
3: have you made of the event today it's been really interesting i think we've we've taken obviously a very broad range of subjects on health education jobs and some of the contributions have been have been fascinating i thought it was um, quite funny to kick off the morning with jamie driscoll the north of time mayor saying that he essentially wanted a bit of northern independence it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek comment really um and then we went on to some of our keynote speeches i thought neil o'brien he was very frank i mean for a government minister he was saying the level of control that central government has over local authorities is crazy i mean that's not something you would expect a minister to say but very open and frank comments and i thought in all you know it was a really good day for debate and to stimulate ideas and yeah no thoroughly enjoyable i thought So
1: let's have a listen now to some of the highlights of the event. And let's start with the keynote speech by Neil O'Brien, the levelling up minister.
2: The truth is that, of course, uh, central government, if levelling up was just about central government, uh, we would never uh, succeed because as you look around the world, it's extremely hard to think of examples of dynamic economies that don't have strong, empowered local leadership. An economist, uh, uh, Philip Chan, points out that the UK is one of the more uh, geographically unbalanced economies in the world, and that more geographically balanced economies are stronger overall. And it's not hard to see uh, why, because of course if you have an economy where you have some parts of it where they are overheating, uh, you know, people can't afford to buy a house, people can't get on the train because it's too crowded, and at the same time you have parts of the country where they are crying out for investment, crying out for new jobs, where you have infrastructure and assets Uh, that are use under employment, then you can see the potential for a win-win from the levelling up uh, agenda, that you can both breathe new life into the places that need it and also take some of the pressure off those places that are uh, overheating. Uh, And of course the UK is not uh, only one of the most uh, geographically unbalanced economies uh, among our peer group, but also one of the most centralised and there is a clear connection between uh, those two facts. Now in 2010, the only part of England that had significant devolved powers was London. And don't get me wrong, it was an extremely good thing for the capital to have a uh, widely recognised mayor who could go and hustle for investment, to have uh, you know, a TFL, a powerful transport body, to have uh, you know its investment agency, well, those are all good things for the capital, but the problem is that others didn't have those good things uh, uh, as well. And I do uh, think, to strike an optimistic note, that after decades of centralization, the tide is now firmly flowing in the other uh, direction. And we have got a model, in the MCA model, that is sticking uh, in Liverpool, in Greater Manchester, in West Yorkshire, uh, South Yorkshire, and uh, Teesside, and lots of the time. We have mayor combined authorities, and I think they're already making a big difference there. Britain, I believe, is a a real outlier in terms of its centralization. In America, or in Germany, or in France, they just take it for granted that if you are looking to invest in a place, then there will be a single phone number, and a single person you can call who will be able to sort out your needs in terms of transport, in terms of skills, in terms of infrastructure, and we need to have that uh, here. We also need visible leaders who can go and huckle for investment abroad, But also be powerful voices in our national political life here. Now, we also need simple and strong accountability to voters. Uh, A person, frankly, that you can either sack or re elect, uh, not some opaque or distant uh, quango. But the common thread behind all these positive changes we've seen has been consistent, strong local leadership. None of those things would have happened if it had been left to central government alone. And I do think that we have got used in the UK and normalised onto what is really a weird uh, situation of centralisation. When I used to work at the Treasury, I used to often just think, we have got too much power here, this is not a normal way uh, to run a country. give you some random examples. If you were uh, to look outside of Bucket Street and the bus is going up and down there, that is a recognised bus route. If the city council here wanted to change that, they would have to apply to the Secretary of State. Um, Take another example. We are, I discovered the other day through our own department, running a competitive fund to allocate funding for uh, disability toilets. Now, don't get me wrong, I think those are very important thing to put in. I think one of the proudest achievements of the Conservative Party in recent decades is the 1995 Disability Discrimination Act, which has uh, not just helped disabled people, but also got us really for an aging society. I think it's a fantastic thing to invest in. But I think it's a crazy way to run a country that if you want to have this disabled toilet, you have to fill in a 42-part form and send it to our department. That is no way to run it a country, it should not be the case that if you want to take out a, a cattle grid as a local council, you're applying to a Secretary of State. This is not a normal way to run a country, and it, it it's holding us back. And I think that um, uh, uh, the changes that we've seen, particularly uh, uh, since 2014, in the start of the devolution agenda, also through the city deals process, uh, does mark a turning point in uh, decades, perhaps a century of centralization uh, in the UK. It does reflect uh, a desire um, to uh, have those strong, empowered leaders, and uh, as, uh, uh, as someone said, in a sense, both sides politically have taken some risks to bring that about. It's, it's often, sometimes uh, awkward for central government and sometimes awkward for local government uh, to work together, sometimes across, across party lines, to do these deals and to make things happen. But it is very, very worthwhile. Um, I have to say that having now kicked around in, in, in central government uh, for, for 10 years, which is a frightening thought, there's nothing more gratifying than uh, when you go to see something, as I did this morning, that was once a line and a submission in a treasury document and is now a fantastic thing that's helping people in this city have a better chance of earning a good living and a prosperous future. And that is what Leatherman is about. That is what local leadership is about. That's why we're backing it. And that is why I'm super pleased to be here today as we start to take the next steps on this really important journey. Thank you very much.
1: And concluding the event, Lisa Nandy returning to the city of Newcastle where she studied for three years, this is what she had to say.
4: It's fair to say that the last decade has not been kind to us. In too many communities across the north of England, people have watched the very social fabric fall apart. Our high streets are struggling, too many of the pubs, the banks, the post offices, those institutions that the Tory MP Jesse Norman once said, shape and define us as we shape and define them, have disappeared. And the Prime Minister made headlines a few months ago when he came to the northeast to talk about those great British institutions and in particular singled out Peppa Pig. Now, I am as big a fan of Peppa Pig as anyone, but to get to Pepper Pig World from South Shields where he was standing takes seven and a half hours by a combination of metro, bus, and three different train services. I mean, anyone who has ever tried travelling on public transport around the north of England will say to the Prime Minister, good luck with that. (laughs) And if he'd come by public transport, he would know that that is the reality that many people have lived for the last decade. That the buses and the trains that connect us to opportunities, to jobs, to friends, to family, have been allowed to disintegrate. And that too many of our young people leave their hometowns to go to university, but when they look back, they find there's too little to return to. So we are going to change this as the next Labour government with the best asset that we have, the people. Because if I've learned anything in the last 12 years as the Member of Parliament for Wigan, it's that people who have a stake in the outcome work harder, try for longer, are more creative, problem-solve relentlessly, and are willing to go further and do more because it matters to them. But too often, those people who have skin in the game and a stake in the outcome are the people who have the least say in the future of their own lives, their communities and their country. And for me, they are where the real future lies. Not so much in the big flashy infrastructure projects that politicians are so fond of. I've lost count of the number of times I've seen Tory MPs touring the north of England with hard hats promising to concrete over our greenbelt in the last few years. The bridges, the airports, the freeports, these are the things that obsess them. What obsesses me is our people, our assets, and our potential. Because for all the political obsession with shiny new things, these projects where all the money goes too often have nothing to do with people's actual lives. In Westminster and Whitehall, the obsession is with trains, but they forget about buses. Now, I've long supported High Speed 2 because I believe that on balance, the benefits it brings to the north outweigh the very real problems. But if we'd had the power and resources that we need in the north of England, we would not have wasted any time in connecting up our great northern towns and cities and investing in our buses, which is where most people are. And it wasn't noticed very much, but when ministers axed the integrated rail plan, they didn't just take the funding that had been promised 60 times but never delivered. They took the power from the north of England to deliver what was left of northern powerhouse rail too. It is so deeply frustrating that for all the talk about money and power, the real story of the last few years has been about clawing powers back to the centre. And it's become easy, I think, in Westminster circles to mock levelling up. Um, The joke goes in Westminster that if you ask any two government ministers what levelling up means, you'll get three different answers. (laughs) And in many ways that's true, Boris Johnson says it's about hope and opportunity, Jacob rees mogg says it's about paying in your own way, Michael Gove says it's King's Cross style regeneration of town and city centres inspired by the Roman Empire and Renaissance Florence. But I want us to be clear about what actually is the problem that we're trying to solve. Because for decades, the communities that once powered our country have told to be grateful for just crumbs from the table. Far too many places have been losers in our economic settlement, many of them the industrial and the coastal towns here in the northeast and in every region of the UK where good jobs have gone and not been replaced. It's left far too many young people who have to get out to get on and move far away from their homes and loved ones just to find decent opportunities and you know I was one of those young people who grew up in Lancashire who left to make my home here in Newcastle and then later in London but that was my choice. I want all young people to have the choice to stay and to contribute or to move to look for new opportunities if that's what they so choose. Because for many of those young people it's not a choice, they simply have to go if they want to build a future. And the spending power that leaves with them has cost us our high streets and our pubs and our banks and our post offices and our bus networks. In short, the very social fabric that holds a community together. It's left older people growing old hundreds of hours away from children and grandchildren. And I see it all the time in my own town is that people feel the aftershocks of that in every part of their life. Prosperity is declining, the community is eroded, and there's a growing sense of insecurity about the future. Across Britain, we're all proud of the places that we call home. I often liken it to how you talk about your family. I can tell you that you know, my, my dad's driving me up the wall, I can tell you that my sister's driving me crazy, but don't you tell me the same thing, or you'll get very short thrift. And for so many people, I think that's become the sentiment about our own towns, is that we love them, we're proud of them, but that love and pride is tinged with sadness and sometimes even despair and that has got to change. This feeling is palpable on high streets, in workplaces and in local pubs, of the places that once powered this country. That contribution that we once made to the future of this country through the mines, the mills, the factories, the steelworks, it's been lost in too many places and it stings.
3: Now we have highlights from our education panel, where one of the speakers was Deborah Dumas-Camp, who is from the Irish Learning Trust.
5: I feel unfortunately at the moment in primary schools, and I think I echo colleagues in secondary school, um, that the top-down model that the Minister talked about in every area, from disabled toilets to cattle grids, uh, we can't breathe in school. We've got such a centralised system that the DfE control everything. Um, an example, maybe colleagues have forgotten, but you know that this—I feel there's a little bit of a myth around academies having autonomy. Actually, we're very, very constrained. Um, you know, in primary schools, you, you, you're told that you don't need to follow the national curriculum, yet you're judged on the Sats that measures the national curriculum. So, why are you not going to follow the national curriculum? Um, you know, at the height of the COVID pandemic, we had colleagues in trusts in uh, Greenwich, uh, in the Northwest who needed to close their schools because of COVID and outbreaks and legal actions threatened. So at the moment, I think the relationship with the DfE and schools uh, is very fraught uh, because it feels like they know all the answers and we don't know anything. And I think for me, for any leveling up agenda too, or any agenda, not just the leveling up agenda, is that we feel that we need to have our credible voice heard, our credible voice that knows our system, that brings experience and insight and understands our communities. Uh, the DfE don't know our communities they don't know my community down in Hendon in Sunderland with 22 languages and, and crime and all of those things I don't need them to give me solutions for money, I don't need 20 grand to spend on tuition that I didn't ask for, that I can't get tutors for and actually I could do a better job myself and so my relationship and I think the sector's relationship with the DfE it is really um, delicate and fragile
3: Now we have highlights from our panel on can the north speak with one voice with highlights from Jamie Driscoll, the north of Tyne mayor.
0: If we look at the north as we define it, the the transport for the north area, that's 16 million people. That's twice the size of Scotland and Wales put together. So there is a question for why is there not a northern voice? Uh, Another way of phrasing the question, should the north speak with one voice, is should the north be independent? Now, I wouldn't for a second suggest that we have our own armed forces, or foreign policy. Um, But if we were in Germany, you would have the lander because they have a federal system. And there are those things that work best as decisions to be made on a national level. And there are those things that work best on a regional level, such as interconnected transport. One of the benefits of transport for the North is I can now speak with confidence about the Castlefield Corridor in Manchester. (laughs) The, uh, The need for the HST station in Bradford uh, all of the concerns that Darren Hale has down in Hull, all of the concerns that, that, uh, that they have over in Cumbria. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily sure that's what I signed up for when I became <laughs> mayor, uh, but that understanding of each other's problems and the interactivity and how we function as an economic unit is important. Now beyond that, I think there's the double devolution principle because our regional accents are pretty close to our city regions. That's because these are natural economic areas So if we're gonna get to a place where we are not forever going to Whitehall, saying, can we have some money? And Whitehall saying, yeah, you can have that for the next 18 months. And we're saying, how the hell are we supposed to plan on that basis? We have people. If we're gonna be a powerful economy, it cannot just be the wealthy doing well. We've gotta make sure that these long-term problems, where people have had a difficult education, where they have ill health, where where kids coming through care are massively disadvantaged, that's gonna involve getting everything working. And our government system, is based on a 17th, 18th, 19th century model where the state did very little and the state now does a lot. And it cannot be done in that siloed basis from Whitehall. You need that place-based element. And whether it's mayors, whether it's local authorities, these powers need to be here. So the question is, how do we do that? Now, um, I've been talking to to Neil O'Brien earlier about how we, we bring these things forward. The reality is that never is an area being given powers centrally. They have to shout for them. They have to make the case. The economic success that we've had in the north of times has been outstanding with the money we've had. If we had 10 times the money, we'd get 10 times the success. We can prove that. So it's not quite that I'm calling for a coup d'etat, but I am calling for a coup de north. <laughs>
1: first panel event of the day was addressing the issue, can the North thrive if it's poor and unhealthy? It was chaired by Helen Vesty of the Manchester Evening News and our panellists were reflecting on the few number of mentions that poverty and health had in the recent levelling up white paper. Well,
6: from your point of view, what kind of impact does investment in larger cities, perhaps not so much in suburbs where families might be struggling. What kind of impact does that have? Um, I'm not sure if it's in terms of child poverty around investment in larger cities. I Mm. think we've all touched on the fact that, you know, there are actually, as well as the inequalities that exist between the north and other parts of the country, there are huge inequalities within the north (laughs) and actually within quite small geographical spaces. So, you know, we're sitting in in Newcastle Central at the moment that has... uh, one of the highest if not I think it's the second highest rate of child poverty in the whole of the region but actually it has parts you know West Gosforth um, that have some of the lowest rates of child poverty in the region um, and I think it, for me it's about how, how we level out the playing field and acknowledge that sometimes you have to do you have to use policy levers to do that um, and you have to be quite targeted and um, I think Leveling Up presents an opportunity to really make an ambition that we are going to be levelling the playing field for all children and new people. I went through 332 pages of, of the levelling up white paper. It didn't mention the words child poverty once. Poverty is the, is the leading driver of inequalities for children in the north, and yet it's not referenced in the white paper, and never mind is, are there any targeted measures to address child poverty, and it's not one of the, the missions or the, the measures of success for levelling up poverty reduction. Uh, Which to me, it goes to the heart of the question for considering um, whether it's possible to level up when, if you still have, for the North East case, 11 children in the classroom of 30 being held back by being in poverty. Mm. Mm. That's an interesting point, I think. The mention of health in that white paper was, in my opinion, relatively brief, which made (laughs) my my job that day quite (laughs) short-lived.
1: Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons and Dan O'Donoghue and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including Apple and Spotify. Also check out the other laudable podcasts like this one See you next week. The LGBTQ community is not just for Pride, it's for life. From protests to parades, parties to politics, Pride is all about visibility. The LGBTQ community is loud and proud here and queer after many years forced inside the closet. And we hope to hear from all voices from across all gender identities and sexualities and representatives of all backgrounds for a brand new podcast, The Outcrowd, with me, Joe Alley. This is a celebration of queer voices who fight to be heard against the insidious waves of homophobia and transphobia still experienced today. This is an education about the history and culture of the LGBTQ community. And this is a podcast that is loud and proud, here and queer, and most definitely out of the closet.